I mean, I've heard that fatigue is essentially an emotion, right? It's not mm-hmm. like a status of fuel going down and you're like, you are now fatigued and you have to stop. <laughs> it's your body producing a signal saying, oh, we don't really need to spend resources on this. So I'm just going to give you the perception and feeling emotion of fatigue as a signal. Um, but that's something you could play with. And a lot of it depends on the context of the task. So like we were talking about, you know, the, the difference between play and just running through the motions. Kids will play until they, they drop, right? But if you have them do something they don't want to do without meaning or even like as punishment, they're going to feel very different yeah, while doing 100%. it. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyo Mat. The Plyo Mat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyo Mat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Today's podcast is also brought to you by the Team Builder training software. Whether you're taking your program paperless, collecting better data, or looking to provide a high-quality programming experience, Team Builder was built to fit any strength coach in any setting. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, and I appreciate you being here. I'm excited to welcome back to the show trainer, lifter of heavy and varied objects, and philosopher of movement, DJ Murakami. I had DJ on the show recently within the past year, and I had a ton of questions that I didn't get to ask him for the last episode, so I'm excited to get him back on the show. And on the podcast today, he'll be going in-depth on how we regulate our training from a mental, emotional, and social standpoint. He'll be going into the greater meanings and themes that drive human movement. He'll be talking about music selection and training, the story behind training, and more. And it's great to have DJ on the show. I really enjoy hearing his perspective. Let's get to episode 373. I know, you know, we've talked a little bit before, I think, at our our last podcast, um, and maybe this is a question I wasn't able to get into fully last time, but the idea of just running training as an epic quest, an epic story. I think that's even, I I think you have a website for that, right? Like Strength Quest. And uh, tell me a little bit more about that. I I, like the zombie apocalypse or or some of the different quests and how that works out, how you're creating a, a story around training just for people who just want to get into strength in a different way. Tell me a little bit about how that works out. Yeah, I think it's cool to look at, once again, training motivations. A lot of people want to gain skills. So if you just think about that in a gamified sort of way, you know, you're on a quest and you want to unlock certain skills, achievements, upgrades, you want to level up, uh, you know, and that might be like the splits you know, is is something, there's a population who really wants that. And I think it's less of like, oh, I want uh, a certain capacity of my my hips, or I want a certain, you know, mobility in this joint. It's like, no, I want that skill to do so that I can, one, show it off, pull it out, even like a party trick, like those things are big motivations. So, yeah, if you think of training instead of, I guess, in the more functional way, like I'm trying to fix something or, you know, there's something I'm 
lacking and I need to be better. It's like, oh, what if I just have this list of uh, quests I can go on, work towards them, and then you get the prize at the end through the effort. And that is the skill or that is an upgrade in strength. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that view of fitness, of physicality. And I think it's just more fun and you could do it a little bit more long-term if you just look at, you know, you're just playing a game with your body and there's unlimited side quests and main quests. And yeah, you're just always leveling up. And while you do so, you get to learn a lot about yourself and hopefully you get to build some community along the way. Yeah, we look at how addicted people are to video games, especially like a role-playing type game where part of the thing is you leveled up. Oh, I'm this far away from leveling up. And it's very definitive. I think in those games, it's very like, it's very clear. You have a certain amount of, you know, points or whatever you need and you become the next level. I think sometimes it's, and I think we, we, we treat it the same way in most gym type cultures. I mean, you're leveling up when you're in middle school or high school is just, Hey, I put 10 more pounds on my bench. I leveled up, you know, but it's mm-hmm. like if it's only one thing that eventually you eventually hit the point of diminishing returns, it might get a little redundant. And that's one of the things that I really think is interesting about more of a, I guess you could say like a movement culture approach, like Ido Portal and just like all these, it's almost infinite, all these different patterns that you can improve at. So, and the cool thing with that, I feel like too, is the more things you improve at, if I, if I level up in 20 different human movement patterns, I have massively raised my physical level generally versus just sitting there and being like, oh, just got to bench more, even squat or deadlift. I mean, not that that's not great, but like it's, I just find it like the robustness and leveling up in all these different things adds up to a really big thing that's really powerful at the end of the day. So it's, I think it's rewarding in, in multiple uh, levels there. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of, you know, you have your status bar with all your like uh qualities, you know, strength, speed, mobility, you know, and you could plus one, plus two it. So yeah, you have all those qualities. And some people focus, maybe it's like when you choose an RPG, your archetype player, you know, like one's the yeah. brute and the other one's like the the elf. Uh <laughs> so I, I think that is good, like maybe sort of against the movement culture narrative i think it's good to specialize i think it's good to double triple down this is something uh my friend uh bud jeffries used to say but like take your strengths and take them as far as you can you know like yeah you know build up your weaknesses but like you have those strengths for a reason and it makes me think of if i didn't want to have a zombie apocalypse squad i would not want a group of everyone being mediocre at everything, I would want a group of separate specialists in my squad, kind of like football. You know, you have the the quarterback, the lineman, they have different strengths. To me, that seems more uh, effective when you're looking at, at a group social community level is to have, um, you know, diversify and spread the, uh, the resources and the, and the talents. But yeah, it's cool because you have the option to take whatever path you want to do, level up in whatever way you can and kind of build your own avatar and character in a sense. So there's no right or wrong. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, maybe I should clarify a little bit what I was saying before, because I, I totally agree with you as well. And I, I'm definitely in one to, I would agree with Bud Jeffries as well. Like whatever your strength is, that is your archetype. And you, you are that archetype. Like you, you can do some other things, but ultimately that's the big thing that feeds your engine. And I guess I, I think of it a little bit in the sense of maybe skills that are within the realm, the general realm of that archetype, maybe would be a better way that I had wanted to put it. And I, one of my own stories was, I remember this was back when I was in high school and I, it was my senior year and I just got on this like break dancing kick. And I, it's, I, it's funny because I think about like what archetype am I, you know, like I, I was a high jumper, did like track jumps, but I also liked like break dancing, like athletic stuff, like that kind of thing. And so just, I guess, very elastic, more movement oriented type. And I remember when I was getting into that and then um, just in the scope of basketball season, we were doing a lot of like intense sprints and those types of things. And I had to take a break from weights for a while. But I remember I actually jumped my highest in like all of high school basketball coming off of that stuff. And it's like, it's breakdancing a little more upper body, lower body mobility, but still like spinal engine, just being athletic. Uh, even even stuff like doing the worm for people who know what that move is. I It's funny because I, I tried to start doing that again like last year and I was so much worse at it than when I was in high school. And I just think even like the spinal segmentation, working with the ground, like all this stuff that if you don't do it for 15 years, I'm like, wow, I can't believe how much I've lost. And so, in so many ways, uh, me getting back into some of these things and even... um. Some of the Ido Portal stuff, like uh, Mar- Marcelo Peloso, I probably butcher his last name. I know he was an Ido Portal student. A lot of like the just like movement stuff that reminds me like break dancing. I I don't exactly know what you'd call it, but even in, in getting into some of that more recently, I found uh, like I'll throw javelin now, and just doing that, like my javelin gets better without having to work on javelin. It's all kind of related. It's all spinal mobility and spinal engine, but in a slightly different context and. Then going back to the actual javelin, it's like, oh, this is way better. So that's more where I'm coming it from. I I think obviously if I want to be really good at like running half marathons or something related to that, that probably wouldn't be so much in my wheelhouse. But uh, I guess I just think about it more from the sake of of related skills. Finding uh, you could say make maybe closely related side quests that you can level up in that are meaningful and rewarding along the way. Yeah, I like that story. That makes me think like, hey. If you could take a group of people and work on uh, spinal segmentation and spinal waves against so facing a wall, um, and then take a people and just try to get them to learn the worm, which would have a better, oh, yeah. more applicable outcome. You know, it reminds me of like, you'll see a lot of people in movement culture, they're like bouncing a tennis ball and hitting against a wall for 10 minutes. Um, like, what if you just boxed or, or played a ball <laughs> sport with friends? You know, what would have a better carryover? for overall athleticism. It goes back to kind of what I'm what I've seen with like the kids, like people making kids exercise and do like repetitive tasks when it's just so built in if they want to play or have a game. Um yeah, I think there it's a spectrum, but it's interesting where we have the delineation between what's can be in a gym in a program and what is kind of serious, definable, measurable uh capacity versus skill if you want to put it like that yeah i think yeah with what you're saying too it is something i've been thinking about a lot the last few years is basically anytime i watch any exercise i'm always weighing it against the intensity of playing a sport basically like where does this fit 
from like it is all systems all cylinders how does this compare to if i was like if i'm doing a change of direction exercise how does this compare and, and i'm just doing it i don't know in a turf somewhere and there's nobody else around and nothing's going on and i'm trying to like hit a cone a certain way how does that compare to how i would do that if it was in a game and it's intense and i have other people i'm playing with and there's adrenaline and there's you know all this stuff and so, or, and you could take that to anything, a medicine ball, you're throwing a medicine ball and you're trying to get like a hip turn movement versus how does that compare if I'm playing dodgeball and I'm trying to run someone down and hit them with the ball, you know, or something like that. How does it compare from that inner feeling? Um, and part of that too, I think about that a lot in the sense that when I did track, when I was in even competitions versus just practice, like in javelin, I would throw 30 feet farther in a competition, even just warming up. I felt like my body was like ripping itself apart, like something else was working inside of me that I was like, I didn't even know I had this. And so, I always just look at training in that light too. How can I bring all these more meaningful, bigger elements into the training process and and make the whole training like more like this just versus and always kind of having that. And I think that's something coaches you can only understand through through competing you know too or through doing some of those bigger movements and always taking that feeling with you of how engaged was i to do this big thing and then you weigh all the little stuff at least to a degree um with that in mind well so you're you're coaching soccer and this is something i've noticed with little kids is like kids in general if you tell them to, like we've seen this with speed ladders, the agility ladders. Okay, someone could be really good and specialized at the agility ladder. They might not be able to run a route. That might, I think I saw a study where it might impede them a little bit when they go to run a route in the real sport because there's not much carryover, right? Uh, less complexity you're not doing with another human being. You just learned a, a yeah. coordination. Yeah, just short, all short steps too, not bigger, short steps, more complex right. steps. Very, very different. And then, but even if you take that down to like uh, kids playing tag versus kids just, all right, we're going to run a lap or do gassers. They not only don't do the efforts, so you're not getting what you want out of it as far as intensity, but they move very differently. Like mm -hmm. I live right behind me is a middle school. So I could see like the, the blacktop, them at recess. And that's where they do PE. But you'll see kids, like kids automatically when the bell rings, they run out, right? So they're running out, they're running towards something, they're looking, they're reacting. And then you could see it, when they have to do the mile or, or like run to the fence and back, they just change like it's a weird posture and like, ah. And they're not looking to go anywhere. They're just trying to think as they're getting through it. So it, it always interests me that the intensity is one obvious factor that changes there, but also they move completely differently when there's an actual task to complete, meaning behind the movement, and then just moving to move with no real uh, manipulation or goal in their immediate environment. And it's very interesting. I don't know what that is that causes them to. It might be, um, I, I guess, when you go to pick something up off the ground and then when you go to lift a weight, you know, maybe they're, they're switching a mode to like, okay, I don't need to do this efficiently or uh, going for speed. I'm, I'm just going to kind of preserve my energy and maybe that causes them to execute 
the uh, activity a little differently. But yeah, I'd like to see that spectrum measured even in exercise. Like if if there were a task and real motivation behind what you're doing, like you said in sport, um, when you're competing, you a different kind of part of you took over, right? And I think there's something about I think there's something about danger and consequence that we're missing yes. from exercise. And that goes with competition because another human being you're competing against is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there's more consequence, especially social consequence, status, ego, these things. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And working with a uh, high, uh, high jump was an event I coached a lot. And you would see that a lot as well, where, and, and I would say even more so than something like sprinting. I, I don't know why this was in some of these, maybe more. Uh, I would say like high jump and javelin are a little bit more complex and a little bit less innate than sprinting. Um, And I would see like athletes who could barely jump, let's just say six feet, four inches in practice. And then we go to the meeting on the weekend and they'd be jumping six, eight or six, nine. And it was like, and not everyone was like that. I was always like that. Um, And so it's interesting because like with javelin, as I got a little bit older, it was starting to pay attention to what what is my body doing? Like, like I want to do this, like whatever my body is doing now, I'm going to start trying to think about this in practice. And it's, I've heard this before, this idea that your, your, your technique or what your body does, I think we think of coaching as like, Hey, let's tell an athlete these three things. And then they're going to do those three things. And that will make their technique, you know, whatever you want it to be. But at the end of the day, if you zoom out, you start to look at well, your technique is kind of the resultant of a lot of bigger factors, your culture, community, situations, um, things that drive you to a higher level, because if it drove your muscle output to a higher level, your technique has to now encapsulate and take that on too. And so, it's like, it's it's almost two completely different situations in some, in some respect. And so, yeah, you think about, well, how am I just creating situations that uh, can really um, get the fullness of this going? Um, I, I do want to ask you actually with that in mind, one of the questions I had was the, and I, I see you doing this a lot is like, like very physical, uh, a lot of physicality in your training sessions. Like, uh, like if it's like a corrective, you're resisting it manually, you're perturbing it or athletes are, or individuals or clients are learning some, uh, movements and you're like, you're even climbing on their back or like a lot of physical interaction to, to drive things forward. And so tell me a little bit more about your approach on, on physicality or bringing physicality into the training session like manually resisting offering kind of that human level element in the scope of the training session yeah it's kind of what we were talking about especially with correctives and unloaded activities people kind of just go through the motions i'm not sure they are are really um honed in on what they're supposed to feel, where they're supposed to be shifting their weight, what they're supposed to be doing. They're just kind of mimicking a movement. So I think just giving feedback, you know, I like to use my hands a lot on people, giving them the feedback. So they're like, okay, now let's say my posterior hip is loaded up. I feel it. Now I know what I need to squeeze to get Mm -hmm. in and out of that. And now I'm, you know, you're also getting just like with load, a kind of a uh, loaded eccentric, more of a stretch, but you have something to fight against. You know, it's just better feedback. So people aren't, people have a clear, um, feeling of 
what they're supposed to be doing. So it's it's just yeah, I don't think they have enough resistance, especially strong people, big people, adults. Um, when you do a lot of corrective mobility, you know these kind of uh, drills that you don't typically load up, they don't respond to it very well. I feel like people need load to inform uh, the movement itself. They they need that uh that feedback. So yeah, I, I like to use hands on a lot of them because the hip uh, structure especially is hard to load. You know, we have our our hands uh, to pick up weights. We have our feet to push against things. We have our jaw even, but the the hip structure it's really hard to place a load on there without it falling off. So a hand is a perfect thing to put directional load where you want it, you know, with a little rotation. Um, and that's been money for people, especially for hinging, especially for, you know, kind of scissoring, getting in and out of the hip. It just makes it so clear. You could, you know, talk to your blue in the face about biomechanics and uh, what the joint is supposed to be doing and the femur and the acetabulum. But if you just give them the tactile input, bang, it's there and they don't have to think about it. So it's just a, uh, I found it a practical tool that works. Yeah. For some of the rehab stuff too, I saw you doing one with like, um, it was like a dead bug, but you're like kind of moving around, like uh, almost uh, like perturbing the individual in the dead bug, things like that. Um, oh, I, I did want to mention too, I, I, one, when you were talking, I was thinking about and as relates to what we were chatting up before, um, like even before you said it, what popped in my head was they're generating some fight. Like, I think that's a Julian Pinot thing with the phylogenetic wheel. Like there's the stages, the emotional stages you go through as you go through a workout. Maybe it's or like a tough workout. Like first you're in, maybe you're in flow for a little bit. Ah, I'm feeling good. And then it starts getting really hard. And then it's like, oh, now I'm in this fight mode a little bit more. And I think that, yeah, it's, it is interesting because you would think about like, like, like something like rehab, for example, it's like, Hey, I got to fight to get better. You, you probably would hear like something like that term or you should, like you should want to fight to get better, but yet there's not much to fight against in a lot of situations potentially. Um, and so I guess that I think if you have manual resistance, maybe that brings out that emotion as well, or it can help assist with that. Um, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I would say it's going more to toward a flow when you're just dazed out doing a boring drill that you're not really feeling anything with, right? And it's like, okay, oh, now now I'm reacting to you and I'm bypassing the thinking, you know, mine and I'm I'm just into it. And I think, you know, that gets you get out of your head, you get stuff moving. And yeah, even a fight, I mean, you know, even with some of these drills, there's people who say, hey, hey, the the point of this drill is to um to create a more parasympathetic state um blah 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 something but you know even if you get stronger at a movement it makes sense to me that you now can be more parasympathetic with a lighter load because you're more competent and your tissue mm. is more resilient and you could produce more force which in itself makes you feel safer that you have that ability. 
Uh, and once again, I, I think especially for kind of kind of stronger people, adults, that's what they need. And yeah, I mean, you you scale it. So I even like using that um, free dumbbell. Before I use a dumbbell, I like to use my hands for people to press because then I can I can kind of guide where I want the angle to be. I can kind of let up resistance at certain parts of the movement, um, kind of like a band or a chain might do. But <laughs> you as a person are so much uh, smarter and can uh, toggle that intensity where you want it, you know, rep by rep, inch by inch where you want it, depending on the person. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, something about the the interaction with another person trying to uh, find your weakness or test it, you're going to push back. You know, it's like uh, RNT philosophy, right? You're, you're going to instinctually, naturally fight against someone trying to push you over. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show, and in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products, and in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shiliagit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, what, um, so what kind of led you into more of that physicality in, in both training and correctives? Because I'd imagine you probably started from a place that a lot of people start, like going through the different certifications and probably, you know, trial and error, trying some, you know, more, you could say like the flow state kind of stuff where maybe that, I don't know if that terms, at least in context, stuff where you're not necessarily, you're just doing something and you're not necessarily being challenged by it. Like, tell me a little bit more about the path that you took to get to where you are now, where you are like doing more active, things are more active, things are more physical, like you have that tactile feedback of the client's like muscular output and potential and things like that. What was your path to getting there or some major things that happened that got you more in that mindset of where you are now? Hmm. Yeah, I've kind of always done it, but they were um, compartmentalized and I didn't really see it as a, a principle-based approach early on. I mean, if you look at like mulligan techniques in um, physical therapy, like they're, they're tractioning with their mm -hmm. body. They're using a strap, they're pulling. Um, even Kelly Starrett, if you remember, he used to say like, grab a super friend to mm, like yeah, I, I step that. on the band or sit on your and that was more like stepping on you for massage but it was like using another person and um 
Yeah, even the, even the Edo stuff. A lot of it was our fighting monkey. A lot of it is like partner based. You you yourself are the tool. But yeah, I didn't put together that. Oh, it's just load. It's it's just like using a implement barbell, load and resistance. Um, and a lot of them I would use because I didn't have machines in our gym, so I would kind of use myself to set people up and become the like. Here's a little slant board to put your feet, go back on the TRX, and I'm going to push down your shoulders like a pad would on a hack squat. Like you could kind of use yourself to create all the constraints that are out there in machines. And you could even, um, you know, move the, the scale on that spectrum because we kind of think like, all right, like, high skill, low stability, like a barbell back squat. And then there's people like, no, we need to use the most efficient like pendulum squat machine because, and everyone's going from one extreme to the other, but it's like, man, you have the ability to just take people and place them anywhere, depending on the individual, um, just by either using some external constraints or especially using your hands and your body to, to block and provide stability. So. Yeah, I, I kind of seen a, a lot of people have used their hands, especially therapists and other people. But yeah, now I'm just seeing it as, hey, you are just providing load and resistance in a more targeted uh, fashion with a lot more intent. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of this was all the way back almost, yeah, almost 20 years ago now. I had watched, um, I think it was for one of my college university classes. Or maybe something else. But it was a Juan Carlos Santana, like I think it was like training wrestlers or something like that. But it was all, it was all, it was basically no barbell strength training, and it was all you have a buddy and you you carry your buddy across the wrestling mat. They carry you. You could do like lunges with your partner. You could do all sorts of things. And I remember after watching that, I just remember and these people were all very strong. I mean, they probably had done clearly some barbell or level of uh, barbell and dumbbell lifting, but. You just watch that type of thing with just human driven resistance and you're like, wow, you can really do a lot. And then there's something to the human dynamic as well. And this is maybe a slightly different direction, but I was just thinking about, um, and I'll actually be going to this uh, movement uh, retreat here uh, led by Aaron Cantor. He's one of um, uh, the Evolve Move Play coaches that at Rafe Kelly's seminars. And he was talking about a game where basically you... Like the game is just lift your partner up. And every time you as the partner try to make yourself harder to lift. So you're like manually making it harder for the other person. So I was just think, kind of thinking if you could even like make find be like, hey, you got to carry this other person, but they're going to make it hard for you somehow or they're going to make it more difficult. And um, I even within all that too, and as you were talking, I was just thinking about, um, you know, so many modalities that exist in in massage therapy or PT or anything like that. Sometimes, you know, I've wondered how much of this is the exact technique versus just having another human contact interaction, you know, and like just adding that human kind of contact element into physical training itself. I, I think, you know, it's just like a really cool add-on and just being able to figure out ways to implement that and use it, I think is always a plus. So, I mean, I'm just thinking in generalities, like I would have athletes, we would warm up at Cal, like I would just have athletes carry each other, think, especially if it was like a more like water polo, more contact sport, warm up with carrying the other person, sometimes like doing stuff like lunging or things like that. I feel like I probably could have got more creative with it, but I haven't gotten so far down the like, like, uh, 
providing physical resistance into movements. Um, I, I would like to actually go into that just a little bit more, like like the hinge, for example, like teaching the hinge. Um, like how would you tell me a little bit more about how you go into you using your own body weight and manually mm-hmm. helping someone learn some of these key uh, or resist some of these key movements? Yeah, I love that you brought that up because that is talking about the hinge. It was inspired by like martial arts. If you look at judo, I mean, it's, it's kind of the classic hip toss is where they're carrying weight through their hip. Um, and acro yoga, if you look at acro yoga, um, if you're the flyer, you get on top of the base and their legs are straight out. That's one of the best like mm. hamstring stretches you could do because you're having, and you're having to balance this person and push into it. Um, and I was kind of like, Hey, if you flip that over feet on the ground and then put the person on the hips and have them balance through the floor, that's really mimicking the hinge. And one of the hardest parts of the hinge, I think is like the weight shift, um, on the feet. A lot of people, you know, you get kind of sketched out because of the balance factor, but if you hang yourself on someone's hip, they can literally put all their weight forward and not fall because you're counterbalancing them. And they could really like, you know, pull their hips up, get deep. And it's always like deeper than anyone can go because they have that weight balancing them. And they know, okay, now I'm pushing through my hips actively. Um, but yeah, that's it. Once again, in martial arts, I mean, that is jujitsu essentially, if you're looking at joint isolated movements you're literally trying to break people's joints um and that is just so happens uh black belt dr dre uh spina you know i think that's the influence behind something like frc and if you go back far enough all resistance was i mean apart from carrying stones and stuff uh a lot of it was resistance with other people wrestling and martial arts Martin Rooney even had a book. You remember Martin Rooney? Yeah. Training for Warriors? I do, yeah. Um, He had a book. What was it? But it was all partner uh, training drills with another person. A lot of it was kind of uh, wrestling inspired, grappling inspired. But yeah, that stuff is is powerful and it'll get you in shape. It's second to... I think if you got a partner like that and a sandbag, man, you you could get a lot done just with those two. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think about everything you get done just on the field of play, just just by chasing other people around and being explosive, using other people to help motivate your movement strategy on the field. And then off the field, you can do the same thing. And yeah, I think you can definitely get, it's almost as if we should have in exercise curriculums, have a section on human training manual resistance techniques you know where before because everything it's it's we it's almost like we do everything but that and i've heard um it might have been like rick rubin who said something like this where artists an artist shows you uh non-verbally or or through what you already know to be true something like that where it's like and you see some of this training and it's like you know this to be true like this is athletic it's going to get you strong this works on principles some of those greater overarching principles uh, it kind of goes back to um the idea that one thing lacking is we need more consequence and danger in our tasks and 
I don't know. I, I think there's just too much liability as far as mm. educational institutions teaching that. Because, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, you you got to safety first. What was the safest thing we could do? Safest entry for all populations, and it's going to be probably a machine or the the therabands. But yeah, for people who you know who uh, I treat train uh, coaching more of an art. Um, at a human level, then there's a whole world you could, there uh, as far as applying resistance with your own body. Yeah. I, one of the questions I was actually going to ask you, I'm glad you brought that up, was I think you might have said your your dad or a coach said this to you at some point, but it was like the scared, it's the scared player who gets hurt. And I think that's just, isn't it so interesting? Like we have an industry that's, or a huge part of the industry that's so devoted to injury prevention and reduction, but it's all, and not that, you know, I, I think it's with the actual injury numbers, some people would say we have more than ever. I've looked through, I think Jan Ekstrand has actually said in like Premier League soccer, there's less. So there's clear, there is something being done there that's helpful. Maybe it depends on the population a little bit, but I think it's undoubtable that we've, we're really only taking, I think, one major approach to it, which is mostly database. You know, it's, it's on the more quantifiable end. But if you look at, I, I even just, again, playing youth soccer, you watch kids, just their general tendencies and like how tentative or timid are they? How good are they at falling? Can they fall and get back up again? You know, like, and it's just, it's interesting to see that. I know um, Austin Yoakum as well, who you I know you're on his podcast has talked about in football, like the ability to fall and land well in a falling situation, not in a, like a control, not like your feet are hitting the ground to snap down, but to be able to fall and roll to fall and mitigate, which does take, there's instant dis- discomfort there too. This isn't like a safe drill. You're literally getting dumped onto your back somehow and you have to find out a roll out of it. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious for you to expand a little bit about, on that um, that phrase or that topic and how you approach that line in your training, right? Because there is like that, I guess, safe-ish container of training that exists. But then how do you work that mentality in light of that container? I don't know the, the root of that. I, I've been thinking about that. I think it goes back to what we were talking about. You have kids running just to run a lap and you have them running to chase someone they're going to execute that movement completely different. And I think from an emotional level, when you have doubt and fear going into a movement, it completely changes how you execute the movement. And I think it becomes a more dangerous movement. Yeah, when my dad said that, it it was me like um, guarding and covering myself up before I was about to get hit. And the other person would hit me. I didn't run through the person. So I thought I was protecting myself, but I was actually <laughs> getting wrecked a lot more. And, you know, looking back to, um, to times I've, I've hurt myself lifting, many of those times I remember being very, um, there was doubt before the lift, like something was off in my head. Um, I remember before one time someone said, some guy was like, worked at the gym was like, stop, uh, making noise with the weights. And I just got pissed off and I, was, and I went into like, okay, I'll go to my lift and I hurt myself. Like, cause I was not very grounded that something, um, got me out of my center. 
And yeah, when, when people are scared, I think I talked about um, this last time we spoke, but even just if you're going into a movement and thinking, oh, if I move this way, it is bad for me. If you have a nocebo going into a movement, that is going to completely change how you execute the movement, how you feel the movement, how you relate to the movement, and even just the fact if you can do the movement, right? Um, if you put it in a different context, someone could easily do the movement. But if uh, I talked about the the lady who picked up the sandbag and was pressing it, she picked it off the ground pressing. It. And then when I told her, right, we're just going to deadlift it and not press it. She said, she tried to pick it up and said, I can't, my back hurts. Even though she was previously picking it up to press it overhead. Cause it was a different word, deadlift, whatever mm. that she had a history with a negative history. And then there's all these oh, I have to lift it like this and I have to do that. So, you know, pain is uh, psychosomatic, social. So, I I really think there's something there on the emotional, psychological level relating to performance and pain going into a lift. And have you heard of IFS therapy? Internal family systems? Yeah. Yeah, a little, a little bit. So they did a study um, published where they had a group of uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis, which is progressive, right? It's You can't really cure that. So a lot of people, um, so they all had that in the study and they gave them IFS protocol where they were relating to their pain or whatever body part and creating a relationship with it, talking to it, you know, going through that whole system of listening. Like, what what are you trying to tell me? Like, I'm here for you. You're not a bad thing. And they were processing some stuff. Uh, I don't I don't want to say majority, but there was a good percentage of that group that actually went into remission of their symptoms. Interesting. And so I started playing around with that before lifts. If there's a lift where I was like, I don't know, this is a heavy weight, I would, or like something's bothering me, bugging me, I would just kind of start to open up communication with it and I would talk to it and I would, um, yeah, it it changed the experience of the lift and the numbers went up, the ease went up, the uh, perceived effort went down and now on lifts like that can be a little heady like a snatch something where it's like you have to commit and pull there's no thinking you know and they talk about this in archery and shooting like you have to go through this mental routine before pulling the trigger or else you're just expecting that recoil and you're get, you're always going to be off the aim um so I'll go into some of these lifts and I'll bring people <laughs> with me um like not just parts of me like an ifs but like i don't know like my dad like my kid and it's amazing how that changes the lift the experience and the uh the load you can do the performance see i've been playing i've been playing that with a few people actually who are familiar with ifs and and the results are are interesting Mm. i i would i'm think I want to get a large group to play around with this stuff, but it's going back to um, 
yeah, emotional valence. Are you on the negative side of emotion, fear, doubt, um, you know, or are you on a positive side, you know, love? Because um, if you look at for 20 years, 20 plus years of my life, I've been training, competing with anger primarily. And I think many, I think many men do this. If you're on a treadmill, you're, you're putting, look at the music we choose. A lot of it is hardcore rap, rock, like it's very combative. You're imagining, you're going back to the enemy, which is what we're talking about. Like, all right, I'm going to look at the movies you look up to, to pump you up. They're very competitive fighting someone, but that's very taxing physiologically to go to that emotion constantly. And I think you could actually use this as a meditative psychological, emotional practice to go into some of these high arousal states, such as heavy lifting or high rep sets with a more positive emotion, which is super hard. That was one of the hardest things for me to do, but I've actually seen change and carry over to the rest of my life, rest of my day after practicing that kind of shift in mindset over and over. So, like I said, I don't really, I'm just speculating, but there's something about emotion and uh, yeah, movement. Yeah. I think there's a lot of links there. I, there's a few notes I had in my head on what you were just saying. Um, the music one's really interesting. I think we had talked about this maybe before, before we actually recorded our last podcast is I remember talking to you a little bit about like what music I listened to or something, or you asked me and I, because I used to listen to a lot more of that. I, you should have seen my playlist when I was like 27, <laughs> my lifting playlist. I should dig it up if I could find the old little um, iPod that it was on. But it's now it's almost all like, like kind of EDM, 90s, like dance type stuff and, and you know, that kind of thing. At least that's the kick I've been on more so. And it, it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more sustainable. And I don't know, for some reason... I don't, I, I will occasionally, like there maybe maybe a, once a month or once every two months, I'll put on something that's a little bit heavier for lifting, but it, it is rare. But I, I don't know. It, and there was nothing that was really substantial that got me away from that. I think maybe it just got a little old. Like, I don't know. Like maybe I, or I think what got it actually, I think what might have changed it is I started, I, did, I actually just started listening to more EDM stuff and just found it was easier to sustain and be in a flow state in the workout doing that. And then I'm like, well, I could do this for heavy lifting too. Like, that's okay. And yeah, for some reason, it just kind of worked its way up. But I do think like that, it's almost like in some ways, our training session is our interface with our shadow a little bit. And we'll put on like the thing that, you know, that you wouldn't really go to in normal life, but it's like lifting, you can, I guess, experience it a little bit, or you put on the angry stuff, or it is interesting to think about that. Um you, know, you you have my my wheels turning with that with the music and the the workout selection. I'm sure that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, just about. Yeah, even Julian Pinal he had uh, he had something where he was talking about going for a walk, um, for whatever, fifteen minutes, and he's like, watch your watch your thoughts and don't go to a, a dark place. Like, don't go to a fight. Like, think happy thoughts. I couldn't do that. Like it would always go, especially when I'm like 
in the flow going and breathing i would go to like a ruminate about a bad event like where you know i would have to fight someone or save people or something <laughs> um and then brian mckenzie also he has this drill where you go on a bike and you're you're kind of reaching this zone and you're trying to maintain nasal breathing and when you go to this place where you're scared and it's like i want to breathe i want to get out of here like watch your thoughts watch your emotions it's very interesting what pops up it's like a mm -hmm. very um predictable pattern of thoughts and if they're positive or negative where they go and i think that is something that we just do unconsciously on repeat like we've trained ourselves mm -hmm. to think a lot and i think we do that or at least i did that through training i would use a lot of um you know, like i said negativity fear uh i mean insecurity uh anger which which was very helpful and useful but like you said i'm at an age now where i don't know how much i can keep that up i, I think it's draining me more than aiding me now so i do think it's something you can intentionally train and change these kind of thought patterns that are related to physiological energetic states of the body yeah, it makes me think about, I guess, the archetypes or stages of life. Isn't it something like you're in the warrior stage and then you move towards like the king stage or something like that? Maybe it just has to do more with the warrior stage too. I don't know. You know. That uh, sounds a lot cooler. Yeah. We're in the king stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget. Uh, I, was the, I think some of that came out of that book. It was like the, the four archetypes. It's like warrior, magician, lover, and then king or something like that. I forget who right. wrote that. But, um, you know. um, was that uh, Carl Jung? Uh, I don't, I'm sure he probably talked about it. It was um, no, it was somebody else though. Uh, now I'm now I'm a knight, I, I, I can't. Remember. I know the book you're talking about. I forget. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's on my bookshelf upstairs. I, I <laughs> all down here is all the training books. I, they don't have the I don't have the um, archetypes and the the Carl Jung type books down here. Sadly, but I'll have to go check after the the conversation here. Um, I was gonna, but say, it, it makes sense in that warrior phase. Think of think of teens boys they're maximizing testosterone they are um primed to go fight <laughs> they're primed not to think about consequences down the road and mm -hmm. be impulsive and be angry and get together they're driven away from mothers caretakers and they go with the boys that is who they listen to more than family at that age so it's almost built into them to, all right, go off to the gang and go fight the outsiders. And then you have, like you said, the king. After that, they're like, okay, now I need to be more strategic, more rational, and make decisions less off those type of emotions in the heat of the moment. Um, as testosterone is starting to come down, you have a fully formed prefrontal cortex. Um, or maybe you have kids and then you, <laughs> your uh, brain and body change a little bit more. But yeah, I, I've been thinking about that too. Uh, it, it's nice to have lower testosterone. Everyone wants to maximize testosterone. I think there's something very nice about bringing it down <laughs> in older age. It, it's really, 
I think you're more productive, <laughs> to be honest. It it is uh it is interesting. Yeah, with the with the waves of things and then even yeah, I honestly I look back, maybe the impetus for me was having my uh first child being born. <laughs> like that that might have been a big piece of that too, honestly. I should go back and look at my Spotify and, and see that <laughs> changed seven years ago. Um you wow. know, w- one thing you were saying too, DJ, you you got me thinking about I guess just like you know, there's the link between the mind and like an exercise, like deadlift. But I also think about, and you mentioned this, like, um, or just talking about like, why, like, why do we quit in an exercise? Like if you're just doing like a, like a lunge hold or a horse stance or something for time, I think it's an interesting practice to, to do that and to go as long as you can. But then instead of just being like, oh, it hurts, I quit which would most, that's probably the most common thing is actually like asking yourself, why am I quitting? Like what emotions are coming up that might actually be possibly creating more pain than actually it is? You know what I'm saying? And what happens if I just let myself like drop further into this stance instead of like going the other way? Or I've even thought too about, uh, you could say the same thing with breath holds. I think that's pretty common is using a breath hold as a medium for like why am I choosing not to do, you know, why am I choosing to take a breath of air, at least right now when my blood oxygen is probably perfectly fine for the next, you know, 30 seconds or minute. Um, but I've even looked at like, like single, like a single arm push up type thing. Sometimes I'll ask myself, why am I not going down further? Well, it's because I'm afraid, I guess, of failing and not making it back up. But then you go down to the point where you're probably going to fail, maybe, maybe not. But then you kind of look at what your body is doing to try to get you out of that and just kind of going into that space so um i was just i guess just trying to relate a little bit to what you were talking about before like pain or discomfort or going into the rep or things like that have you ever done anything with like muscle endurance like failure type situations that you know that you've kind of learned that that part of your psyche or expanded that part of your psyche with yeah so part of that ifs emotional uh stuff was done with high reps Mm. so high rep isolation work just going to the burn and man you could get a <laughs> i mean everyone thinks they they know their uh rir rp but you can get man 10 15 plus more reps just from that change in mindset and weird stuff will will happen so i uh i mean i've heard that you know fatigue is essentially an emotion right it's not mm-hmm. like a status of fuel going down and you're like, you are now fatigued and you have to stop. <laughs> it's your body producing a signal saying, oh, we don't really need to spend resources on this. So I'm just going to give you the perception and feeling emotion of fatigue as a signal. Um, but that's something you could play with. And a lot of it depends on the context of the task. So like we were talking about, you know, the, the difference between play and just running through the motions. Kids will play until they they drop, right? But if you have them do something they don't want to do without meaning or even like as punishment, they're going to feel very different yeah, while doing 100%. it. Um, when you're talking about holding the horse stance, I went to a workshop where uh, they, they had you hold the horse stance and you're burning and everyone's and they're like, now uh, picture someone you love and do it for them. And then you actually can do it longer because mm-hmm. you're, you're doing it for like, okay, now, this is going back to some of the stuff on the walks I would go to like, oh, I have to do this to save like 
you could find reasons to keep doing things, even if you're making them up in your head. But going back to that high rep set, um, there's a point where you have the signal to stop fatigue, but then you're like, no, it's okay. And even the signal, like, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm okay. And you'll keep going. And then you're almost observing all these signals and feelings coming up in the body. And as long as you could not let them take over and you, you just non-judgmentally keep watching them and going, man, I'll start to like giggle or get to that where it's like on the verge of giggle and cry type of feeling. You know what I mean? Um, it's very weird. Like butterflies in your stomach come up. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen that with some breath work, um, pelvic floor sort of stuff. People will have these big emotional releases and they all seem to be related with a giving in to an experience, you know, uh, and not fighting or going away from it, which is maybe you're bringing up something where their go-to is, okay, I'm going away from this. And it's a chance to create the same physical sensation, but now you are letting it happen and watching and processing whatever might be there so yeah we're getting a little wooey but uh i think there's a lot of woo to play around with in these these kind of things yeah especially once you get into a place where like the the external environment doesn't mask over pain or whatever and even you know what you're saying about love like i've from what i've heard of like jay schrader who's very well known for these long isometric holds and all this stuff but his athletes get very very strong is uh, that he had talked about the pipes like is your training stimulating you on the like physiological intellectual psychological emotional and spiritual or spirit perspective so it's like you have to check off the pipes first and i think from um my understanding i think this was alex lee who had mentioned this uh who was on this podcast a while back with like the highest emotion was like you said it was love like that's the highest thing and like you were saying that could help you hold the hold longer but i think we usually go on autopilot right like even if, like, it was kind of interesting. Last year, I used to rock climb in Boulder all the time uh, when I was young, in my early 30s. Like, I was totally addicted. It, it, was, it was kind of a great place because I had gotten this place where my track marks, my high jump, you know, I'm in my early 30s, my high jump isn't getting better. And so, here's this new thing that I can level up at. And so, I took a break when my kids were born or my, <laughs> and for the first few years of their life, but I just went back last year and got on the wall again. And what blew me away was like my, the forearm pump that I had, like if you just said, hey, Joel, just go hang, like I have a, a set of rock rings here, like near my desk. If you just told me to hang on that for five sets of a minute, I would get a good pump, but it wouldn't be anything close to what I got on the wall because like the challenge, the meaning, like the thought of oh, what if I fall off the wall, like all this stuff is taking me to a higher level. But at the same time, if I'm going to go hang from these rock rings, I am now, I don't have any of that. And now it's just me and my mind and my emotions and all my little programs on the inside. And now I'm stuck with it. And so, you know, I, I just think that it is interesting because it is, it, that's the space where now you're confront. you took everything masking, you know, what your, your inner program away kind of potentially. And I mean, you'll see it in sport too, but you know, I, that being said, I actually am curious to ask you, you know, what's your thoughts on, and I, I know you work more uh, in the scope of like one-on-ones and clients in, in the personal training space versus like conditioning a football team, but what's your thought on like the mental toughness thing? 
like like ah, we're gonna make you mentally tough and go do all these wind sprints or whatever is the typical the typical thing like do you have any insight in that like if you were training the football team and you were trying to you know bring this thought into process without making it confusing or i mean do you have any thoughts on that or where that could be a good or bad thing i mean i think usually it's over conditioning and there's no mindfulness at all and it's just you know making people throw up or whatever and they hate it but I'm curious if you have any thought of how to make that better, you know, how could we mindfully help improve this possibly? Hey, I think there's something to be said for brief periods of over conditioning, Hmm. um, just for the psychological, uh, mental toughness, like you said, but I I think, yeah, to to milk that out, just using manipulating people through competition and through social, uh, punishment reward is it's effective. Like if, if you could take kids and say, you know, like I'm thinking back to football, the the kid walking, everyone would run because he walked. And then, you know, if you want to get really mean, that person has to stay there and watch everyone else run. And then they are not going to do it again. They're going to produce the effort just because of social consequence. So I think, yeah, that, that mental toughness, I think more are, are creating discipline or creating effort. Um, the, the social side is a huge thing to draw upon to get people collectively to do something like that. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, how do you get the motivation for someone to produce effort? And I think play is a great one. Um, social consequence to to form discipline is a great one um i don't think yeah i think those two right there more than a moral like you know it's it's the right thing to do like be you know you're not going to convince someone mm-hmm. you just have to put in the right constraints the, the right uh carrot and stick and yeah get whip people in i think going back to that military mindset um People crave, I mean, people crave that I do nowadays. If I got someone telling me what to do and I don't have to think, there's something so nice about that, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I think the the mental toughness is a part. But when you're going into training for yourself, um, at a, at maybe at a later age, then I think you can go a little deeper um, and it's less numbing. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think you're right about the life stages. There, there's a part where you're like, shut up and do it. And then there's a part where it's like, hold on, let's look what's here and let's, let's dig deeper. Um, yeah, going back to that, that IFS sets. Yeah, there's been moments where I've like cried after a set. Um, it's because it it allows you to to introduce once again given an acceptance of thoughts and expressions while under a high arousal, high stress environment, which I th- which is missing in a lot of like okay, like here's your affirmations or here's some talk therapy on a couch. If you could bring that to like an embodied physical, uh, you know, high energetic situation, I think you can move a lot of stuff. But 
Yeah, it's not a good answer. I think mental the mental toughness part is is definitely uh, something great for the youth and for people. And then you have the other side of the coin where it's uh, maybe don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, what you're saying, like one thing I was thinking about was when you're younger, like just keeping things more task, social oriented, like looking at the greater overarching things, play, being a good teammate, like revolving the the work around that more so than like, hey, it's the end of practice. We're just going to run these, you know, 10 times the field so you can be tough or something like that. There's got to be a like a social, there's got to be some greater overarching pieces to it. But I, I think about, you know, like what you said, if you're younger and you're like trying to keep things just more task oriented, having the football team do horse stance for five minutes and saying, now I want you to go into your internal thought process and dig up, you know, like that would probably work better for somebody who's in their 30s or 40s. They've been through all the warrior stage, they've done it. And now maybe finding ways to be more mindful about your motor programs. Maybe that's a better um, long-term <laughs> process with the whole thing, perhaps. Because I think for me, I, I tend to, I mean, I still make my high school athletes, I train do ISOs, but I don't like, I don't really wring it out of them. I'm not like, all right, we're going to do this till you fail and <laughs> tell me about your emotions and things like that. But I think that there is value there once you're ready for it, once you can, are ready to assimilate those rewards. I think you nailed it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at young kids, it's maybe competition uh, and then maybe social consequence. Because if you tell, I don't think they have the uh, hardware or mm. uh, imagine a young kid with the emotional intelligence to actually like <laughs> to do express the, the perspective <laughs> to think, oh, yeah, I have the love for my family. And, you know, they're not always going to be whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just don't think that's uh, functional for, for that age. But yeah, when you get to different life phases, okay, now this you know how it is now that you have a kid, mm -hmm. like your priorities and your meaning are completely different um, as far as what motivates you at this stage. And I think just uh, exploiting those different motivations at different age levels is, is something I think we do. I think we find out what works for kids and uh, what works for adults more, even in the market. So yeah, I think that's a good thing to take that into consideration. What a, phase of life are they in yeah i think it's important especially to i've had a few podcasts on this show but just like even just training youth like kids who are like six to ten because a lot of times coaches will treat them as if they're like 16 or and they're not you know not not physically and not mentally emotionally the way you train them is different the way you train a middle schooler is different a high schooler someone in their 20s or 30s and it's cool because a lot of times people talk and, and thankfully about the difference between a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 14-year-old, an 18-year-old in the scope of physical training and long-term development. But we don't really talk about what do you do when your sport, your high school and college days are done? You know, finding meaning, approaching training from a different perspective. I think a lot of times we just go back to the things we liked when we did, which is cool, but I just think there's always a lot more there, you know, and just to have thoughts and perspectives on that, I think is really valuable. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so you're what age are you coaching right now for soccer? Oh yeah, just five and six. That's been uh, I, I I my daughter kind of graduated from me coaching her. She's seven and is uh, with a different uh, my uh, former assistant coach. So I took on working with my son. Uh, but it's fun working with like the five and six year olds because it's just like I love seeing that perspective on what really makes these kids tick and what fires them up. And and then I work within my in the gym like kids who are ages twelve to. 22 or 25 
And so I have that age. And then online, I have a lot of, I don't have so many of these in person, but online, I have a lot older clients. And so it's just cool to like really make sure I'm hitting all these perspectives. And even back to what we were talking about before, I did want to mention this with like what stimulates you to to run and move fast is with the five and six-year-olds to do that. We play like freeze tag first because as soon as you roll out the soccer ball, everything gets a little slower. It's like, how do I dribble this? What do I do? There's some anxiety maybe. But if it's freeze tag, you see them just booking it around, like moving way faster, way more fearlessly. Like you just, you aren't having all these extra things in the way that could constrain. So I always try to keep, I'm always think, well, what games We'll keep the level of this as high as possible, and then we'll roll out the soccer ball more at the end, and then we'll do more of the soccery stuff, you know. Versus, let's do, we're going to work on all the fundamentals right now and learn how to do these three things these this way, and just make it boring and you know like the lines and all that stuff, and just so it's it's a fun way to get that perspective and, and then balance it with all, all the other perspectives as we move forward in life and our athletic and movement journey. Yeah. It's funny, my, my kids uh, on flag football now uh, with five-year-olds and it's the most amount of waiting he's like had to do. Like you think you get him in an organized sports game, like, oh, something physical to do. Like he'll play and run around outside for hours just running back and forth. But now it's like in football, he has to wait in line. <laughs> he has to stand there and wait. It's like the opposite of physical activity. It's It's training like patience. But it's funny, they, they, the coach was like, we got to work on these drills so you guys know how to learn how to get in front of them. So it's like these side shuffling to like get in front. And then they go to play in the game and they all start side shuffling and none of them are like going and pulling the flag. And it's like they took it so literally. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like the best thing you could do is just have them play tag and like go after it because I don't think they can integrate uh, the those those drills, those isolated pieces into the, they don't have the concept of that yet. So yeah, it's interesting how you approach that age group. Yeah. With, um, yeah, not, and not just for the, the young, real young age group, but you could do this even all the way to high school, or even beyond it's, um, Powerball. I, for, I forget if I was talking about this with Jeremy or Andy Ryland, but like uh, Jeremy Frisch is really, uh, he trains all athletes, adult fitness, but a ton of youth stuff. And one of his favorite games for young athletes is Powerball. Basically, it's like the American Gladiators game where you like, you know, you got to run and dunk the ball in the little the bucket or whatever it is. And he'll have athletes play it with flags on. So they, they put flags like it's flag football. And there's always one more bucket to guard than there is players. So if you have six players, three are guarding four buckets. And then three people are trying to dunk a ball in the bucket. And so you have to kind of play zone defense, but it's all like, you know, you, there's just, you just play and, and there's not like a coach necessarily telling you what to do, how to do it. And I, and I set that up in my yard. I actually bought flags just to play that game with my kids. <laughs> and like, they mm. were just laughing their butts off, like running real fast. We we don't have a flag. We have, they have to run up the hill and do it. So I guess they're doing hill sprints or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, nice. but I, um, and my son calls it fastball. He just named it. He's like, Hey, you want to play fastball? And so but I think about, I actually might have the soccer kids do that because again, I'm just trying to think about things that where it's not like, like move as fast as possible and, and have as much fun as possible. And I asked Jeremy about that, Jeremy Frisch, who, who has this in his course. And I was like, and I watched kids playing this and I play it myself and I'm like, I think I asked Jeremy, I was like, Jeremy, do you, after you play this game, you, you kind of, do you kind of almost look at every sport in light of the intensity in this game? Cause I talked about like the intensity of the game and you relate everything else to that. And for me, I'm starting to look at youth sports 
Like everything goes back to how intense and fun is this Powerball game? And if you're soccer, your football, your basketball, how many shades less fun is it than that game? I mean, you have to learn like you do have to learn some level of fundamentals at some point for sure. Uh, I think people debate how much, how much play, how much fundamental learning. But I was, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, that got me thinking about the flag football and the, the Powerball there. Um, I know I, uh, I, our time's kind of running down here a little bit, DJ, but I did want to ask you, I did want to close with this was, um, you know, talking about the story of movement. I think you've talked about uh, training for the zombie apocalypse and, and archetypes too. I think, you know, you got me thinking about what my movement archetype is, like jumping and break dancing and, you know, you lift really heavy things and heavy stones and, and like, what, what's your, what's your movement archetype and what's your story in, in how you train and what drives you with your meaning in, in your training practice? Boy. Yeah. Um, pretty, pretty simple bro archetype. I would say I just would like to look jacked, um, be able to look good, play good and feel good. Um, I don't know what archetype that is, but yeah, just, you know, lift. If I could be decently, decently strong, uh, dad strong, uh, farm boy strong, um, look decently good physically and be decently competent as far as jumping in uh, power ball or whatever game and be all right. Then, yeah, I'm happy. That's, that's kind of my goal. Yeah. Yeah, what archetype would you call that? I don't know. I was just thinking. Oh, the bro archetype. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll have to list these out. Because <laughs> I was like, well, what archetype? If I like jumping and like breakdancing movement stuff, like I don't know what that makes me, you know, but it is interesting because I know that, I mean, I like, you know, after watching you do the stone lifting, like I would go run in like a creek bed near my house and there's like these stones at the end of the, there's a little waterfall. I'm like, I'm going to try to pick these up. This is a lot of fun, you know, and I, I really like it, but I, it is it is something I enjoy doing, but I, I don't think it is my, it's not necessarily my strength, you know, compared to maybe some other things. Not that I don't like doing it, but you got my wheels turned to say the least on, on some of these things. So, Well, Joel, you're the assassin. <laughs> All right. You're who we send out when we need to make a hit under stealth cover <laughs> of night. All right. I, I'll, I'll write that down. The assassin type and, uh, you know, maybe I'll have to send, write a bunch of these out and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get a list together. I would love to yeah. for you to make a side quest on the you know assassin uh, mission. That would yeah. be amazing. It would be it'd be a good thought experiment too. I think yeah, just too like you know not to not to keep going. My mind will keep going in this forever, but <laughs> you know we're, we usually think sets and reps, or even getting into more of the art of it. But I think to kind of also have a story like oh this you know how would you train this person and then let your mind run there. How would you train this person? So. You have a good you have a good um, set of good thought experiment for me for my day today. I appreciate that. Imagine a CrossFit class where it's like, okay, what of the day is this uh, character or figure, this archetype, and it looks like parkour, and the other <laughs> one looks like a strongman event. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. Even if you could program for that over the year with different uh, archetypes, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, definitely something to keep me busy with. So. Uh, well, good stuff, DJ. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show here. Um, anything you're you're working on? Any any projects or anything that you want to mention before we um, take off for the day? Yeah, speaking of that, uh, you know, using your body to load people. Uh, we're working on a course called Manual External 
constraints, mm. just, just how to use your hands, how to use your, your body weight to, um, you know, just make any movement better for your clients. So yeah, me and, uh, Garrett, uh, Colgen G money movement will be releasing that soon. Very cool. Maybe it, maybe a, a few, uh, move boys videos in, in relation to it as well, perhaps, <laughs> or, or just anything. Those are always good. Those will also be out. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you again, DJ. I'll definitely be checking that out and I appreciate you taking the time for our show today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joel. That wraps up another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning into this one. If you enjoy the show, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to the show on. I'd absolutely appreciate that. And we'll see you next week.